Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Staff. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, August 6th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll talk about a big acquisition in health tech that will merge a telemedicine provider with a diabetes coaching company. Next, a scientist expressed a controversial opinion about the immediate use of experimental COVID-19 vaccines. And then all hell broke loose. That scientist, Stephen Salzberg of Johns Hopkins, joins us to discuss what happened. Finally, we'll end with the lightning round, going over just how much those vaccines might cost and whether nosy journalists are making the process take longer than it otherwise would. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. So first up, we're going to talk about something that doesn't often happen in the health tech industry, and that is big M&A. The telemedicine provider Teladoc has agreed to buy the diabetes coaching company Livongo at a valuation of $18.5 billion, which the two publicly traded companies announced on Wednesday morning. The combined companies will keep the name Teladoc, and Teladoc's CEO will oversee them both. It's a significant deal in health tech, not just because of the dollar figures, but because these two companies had really been shaping up as the biggest, most important companies in their subsector, especially as the pandemic had fueled their growth. Now they'll create digital health's first giant. So, Rebecca, you've been following both these companies closely in recent months. Can you explain their business models to us? Yeah, so both of these companies are in the employer market, which means that they charge employers and insurers uh, so that their employees and members uh, can use the virtual care services offered by these companies. So this is kind of a a classic uh, B2B model. So Teladoc charges subscription fees um, so that... Uh, People can access doctors on its platform. Uh, Patients also pay visit fees when they use the service. And the company relies on doctors who are independent contractors rather than employing providers directly. And more than 70 million people in the United States have access to Teladoc's platform. So they are are pretty big. So Livongo, which went public last year, uh, makes most of its money Uh, charging employers and insurers, as I'd said, to provide diabetes coaching and monitoring. And the company also has growing businesses that are still small, but becoming a a bigger chunk of the pie in other chronic diseases. uh, So hypertension, weight management, and behavioral health. So Rebecca, how have these companies been faring during the pandemic? Yeah, so they're a lot like Clorox and Zoom. Uh, Both companies have seen their stock prices just soar during the pandemic. Um, Even before the deal was announced, they reached all-time highs this week. Livongo's share price before the deal uh, was nearly six times higher than it was at the start of this year, and Teladocs had tripled in that period. So with that in mind, on Wednesday when the deal was announced, how did the market react? So both companies' stocks fell sharply on Wednesday on the news, which we should keep this in mind that these company stocks have been soaring. So they're still up a lot on the year. But I was surprised that Wall Street hated the deal, you know, especially when I've been hearing um, from so many health tech people who are just gushing about the synergies um, that the union of these two companies creates. 
And we've talked about a similar phenomenon before on this podcast with respect to readouts from biotech companies that get rave reviews from doctors, but that Wall Street hates. And I think what's happening here is similar. You know, investors had hoped that these companies would continue to grow independently and that they could keep trading on on Livongo and, and watching that company grow. And now that won't be happening. So, Damien, you raised a, a pretty interesting point in our conversation earlier when we were discussing this deal about what the merger might indicate about health tech's future, you know, and whether it will more closely resemble the landscape of biopharma or of social media, for that matter. Explain your thinking to us. Yeah, so I think health tech is kind of a nascent industry. And so there's been a lot of guesswork as to how it will evolve. And, you know, I'm used to, to looking at drug companies where, because of patent law, a tiny biotech company can compete with a major pharma company because that major pharma company can't just clone the biotech company's drug and, and compete with it directly. And we've seen the exact opposite dynamic in, in social media, for example. You know, Instagram sold itself to Facebook to avoid probably being cloned out of business. Snap decided not to do that and appears to be getting cloned, um, if not out of business, at least out of relevance. And so this merger kind of suggested that that might be sort of the future for health tech, that the incentive for these businesses would be to merge and to create, you know, behemoths um, in name of the synergies that Rebecca was referring to, which which I think, you know, might have some short term benefits. But I think in the long term, as we've seen with social media, most recently uh, having its CEOs hauled before Congress, that there are pretty serious antitrust concerns um, in tech by and large. And so I wonder if that might not be something to watch for in health tech as a sort of subset of it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The dynamics here are particularly interesting um, because Teladoc and Livongo will be this giant entity, and then there will just be everybody else, mostly small startups. And I think it's very uh, possible to imagine that startups competing in the same lane as the combined company might, at some point down the road, decide that there's no way forward other than to try to become Teladoc's latest acquisition. And Rebecca, what are you watching for next uh, with respect to the union between these two companies? So this deal is not a done deal. Uh, regulators, as well as shareholders, still have to approve it. Um, from my conversations with um, experts in the industry, it doesn't sound like they're expecting uh, this deal to attract too much regulatory scrutiny the way that we've been seeing with uh, another deal in health tech, which is Google's proposal to buy Fitbit. You know, Teladoc is not Google. Um, they're not in the same uh, line of business. And Teladoc certainly doesn't have the same notoriety that Google has. Um, so I think um, this deal will probably go through uh, without too much regulatory scrutiny. I think longer term, though, the, the thing to watch is whether these companies um, can continue to grow, uh, whether their stock uh, price can continue to climb as the pandemic drags on. You know, we, we've seen this real surge in demand for virtual care, um, but it's not clear that that demand uh, will stay strong. Uh, and so I, I think it'll be worth watching whether uh, they can convert this temporary boost into something long lasting. The development of COVID-19 vaccines is progressing at an unprecedented speed. Vaccines that were mere blueprints in January when the coronavirus began spreading globally already advanced into massive phase three clinical trials. The U.S. government wants hundreds of millions of doses of a COVID-19 vaccine 
or multiple vaccines ready to distribute by January. Many experts have raised concerns about this highly compressed development schedule. But this week, Stephen Salzberg, a Johns Hopkins University professor and biomedical engineer, took the opposite tack. Writing in Forbes, Salzberg said that we should be reasonably confident already about the safety and efficacy of experimental COVID-19 vaccines and that we should start inoculating millions of Americans today. So his out-of-the-box vaccination idea was greeted with a fair amount of pushback, including an op-ed in the New York Times and what seemed like thousands of critical comments on Twitter. And so one day later, Salzburg backtracked, admitting that his vaccination idea was maybe wrong. He joins us to discuss the controversy that ensued. Stephen, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thanks uh, for having me. So Stephen, how are you feeling? It's been a, a bit of a rough-and-tumble week for you, especially on Twitter. Yes, it was... Uh quite overwhelming on, on Sunday and on Monday. Not used to getting that kind of pushback. So Stephen, take us back to the intent of your original idea. What were you trying to advocate and, and why? There's a personal aspect, which is I would like to get vaccinated myself. I'm a professor at Hopkins and we're bringing students back uh, in just a few weeks. And um, we are supposedly going to be testing everybody, but there isn't a concrete plan in place. But, you know, a lot of the faculty are naturally concerned about being exposed to the virus, and we're all waiting for the vaccine. And I've been following the phase one, phase two trials of of, uh, several different vaccines very closely. And it occurred to me, and I'm sure many other people, that once you start phase three, as several manufacturers have started, you're now giving the vaccine to tens of thousands of people. So clearly, the people who developed it have have decided that... uh, the vaccines are pretty safe. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly give them to 30,000 people like they're doing. But the frustrating part is that, um, first, that I can't get it. Um, and, and, and people said, you should just sign up. But you can't just sign up. They are overwhelmed by volunteers. So they've already got everybody signed up they want. And, and, and also, I'm not a good candidate for the uh, vaccine trial. Because what they're doing is they give it to a lot of people. But they want people who are at high risk for getting the virus. In other words, people whose jobs or something about their life is going to make them get exposed more likely. Because what they're doing is they run this trial where they give half the people a vaccine, half the people a placebo, and then they just wait and see how many people get infected. And so they're not intentionally infecting people. That would be called a challenge trial. They're just waiting. So that's why it takes a long time. We have to wait for several months till we get enough data that we can see reliably, like what's the infection rate in the people who are vaccinated and what's the infection rate in the people who got the placebo. So I'm not a good candidate because I'm working from home, so I'm not at high risk. So I'm, I'm like the rest of the world, um, going to have to wait. So it occurred to me that, well, why not just start ramping up production since it's already safe enough to give to 30,000? Why not give it to many more people if, if they're properly informed? So that was my idea. It kind of blew up. Right. So the, the pushback came pretty quickly with, with scientists and various experts expressing concerns. I, I saw that Otis Brawley, a colleague of yours at Johns Hopkins, you know, pointed out the example of the swine flu vaccine of the 1970s, which had to be pulled off the market. I mean, in hindsight, do you feel like that the logic you just described was a little too too cavalier or, or what were the issues? No, I don't think the logic is cavalier. I think that I perhaps underestimated the risk. Now, the swine flu vaccine is another story. There was never really a swine flu uh, outbreak in the 1970s. There was fear of one, um, but that, that's a bit of a tangent. Um, the points that people made, I thought that were most compelling were that in phase three, because you have many more people involved, you may start to see side effects that affect a small percentage of the population that you didn't see in the small phase one and phase two trials yet. So if those effects say one or 2% of people, there might be some bad side effect from a vaccine, you might miss that. 
Um, and then there's a real risk if, if you did see a, a bad side effect, even in a small percentage of people, that might be enough to say this vaccine just isn't safe because when you're giving it to millions or, or hundreds of millions of healthy people, even a small percentage of bad side effects is, is pretty bad. That was, I think, the, the, the biggest risk that I didn't really take into account. So it is pretty safe uh, after phase one and phase two, but it's not safe enough to, to start giving it to millions of people. Vaccine hesitancy is a growing problem in the U.S. Uh, I know you have done battle yourself with the anti-vaxxer movement. Are you concerned at all that the ultra-fast development of COVID-19 vaccines may, you know, inadvertently dissuade Americans from being vaccinated? Actually, I'm not really worried about that. I worry a lot about the anti-vax movement. As you noted, I've been blogging about the safety vaccines and about the problems with the anti-vaccine movement for a long time, about 15 years, well, be 12 years. And they continue to spread misinformation and uh, try to stoke fear of vaccines and nothing will stop them. I've seen their, their strategies and their behavior over the years. Just telling them facts doesn't seem to sink in. Um, and we, of course, need to continue to try to educate people and work to, to quell or squash this anti-vax movement. Um, so I, I think that no matter what you do to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, people in that movement will say that it's not safe and they won't take it. They've already been saying that. They were saying that um, as soon as, as words started getting out that vaccines are being developed, they started saying, well, I'll never take one. So I think we have to be careful how we present the vaccines and we have to be open about all the science. And I wrote a blog just a couple weeks ago about how to why people should trust the eventual vaccine. But I don't think that there's much we can do to prevent the anti-vaxxers from saying the sort of things they'll say. So in your follow-up blog post, you wrote, quote, one thing I've learned as a scientist is that if you get something wrong, you need to admit it, learn from the experience, and move on. I was wrong, end quote. So what's been the reaction to this mea culpa? That was also a very strong reaction, but it was quite the opposite from the reaction to my original piece. It's been very positive. Uh, many, many people uh, commented on Twitter that they really appreciated that I acknowledged my error and they were lamenting that this isn't more common these days and most people just double down when they get caught in a mistake. So, and many people wrote to me directly and said, I restored their faith in my, in, in my credibility. And so that was, that was very um, rewarding to get that feedback. So I'm glad I did it. Last question after, you know, that whirlwind few days on the internet, do you still like being on Twitter? Uh, that's a very good question. I've been off of it mostly since, uh, since a couple days ago because it was so overwhelming. I have a full-time job. This, uh, the blogging I do at Forbes is really something I do on the weekends. So, um, it's very distracting. So I, I find science Twitter, which I engage in a lot to be pretty useful as a way of sort of sharing scientific results and new papers. So I'm going to continue to do that. But the sort of um, other aspects of Twitter are, are not, not always so positive. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, let's kick off a lightning round. Uh, we'll start with COVID-19 vaccines. You guys know that over the past few weeks, we've been learning a lot about uh, the efficacy and safety, at least the early look at efficacy and safety of these COVID-19 vaccines. And now we're getting an idea of how much they're going to cost. Damien, tell us what we learned this week. So yeah, there's been a steady beat of news in which uh, governments in developed nations, especially the United States, sign contracts with the companies developing these vaccines um, in exchange for some number of millions of doses, if and when they prove to be effective. And so just with 
back of the envelope math, it allows us to discern how much a given dose of these vaccines might cost. And what's been interesting is there's quite a range. Um, up until recently, we were looking at as low as $4 a dose, which was the implied value of AstraZeneca's vaccine, to about $20 a dose, which was the, the value of the one from Pfizer and BioNTech. The interesting thing that came this week uh, was from Moderna, which has not signed one of these large volume, hundreds of millions of doses contracts, but has apparently done a few of them, they disclosed this week. And the, the price implied by the contracts they've done is between $32 and $37 a dose, which works out to you know quite a bit more, more than double some of its competitors. And I think Moderna even said that they expect the, the per dose price will come down as they negotiate larger deals. But it's going to be interesting that, like, to watch how this market plays out, because you would assume, as with anything, that it would be a race to the bottom. You know, if, if you're all negotiating against one another with the finite number of governments with finite amounts of money in the world, then you'd want to undercut your competitors. But we haven't seen that so far. So this could shape up to be a really interesting case study of global market dynamics and, and how pandemics affect them. And so when we're talking about how much these vaccines cost, what does that mean for, for us, for for everyone getting the vaccine. Is this something that um, my insurer is going to pay for? That's going to be an interesting point. So what's been implied in a lot of these deals, especially the Pfizer one, is that the end recipient of the vaccine, the, the American citizen in this case, would not pay any money whatsoever. That The government's procurement of it, you know, that would be the last time that money changes hands, at least in the pandemic setting. When it's going to get interesting is if COVID-19 proves to be endemic and we rely upon booster shots of these vaccines for years to come, the dynamics of that market aren't remotely sorted out just yet. So there may be a point at which you are shelling out for a COVID-19 vaccine. So next up, let's talk about um, Monsef Slawi. Uh, you may recall that name. He's the former GlaxoSmithKline executive and Moderna board member who leads Operation Warp Speed. That's the federal effort to quickly develop drugs and vaccines uh, for COVID-19. And he was in the news this week. Uh, Damien, tell us why. Right. So the other thing you might recall about Slawi is that his job at Operation Warp Speed is that of a federal contractor in which he gets paid only $1 a year. What that also means is that he doesn't have to file the regular financial disclosures that normally come with that level of influence in the federal government, and he doesn't have to sell any of the stock holdings that might create a conflict of interest in his work. So that arrangement is, is obviously potentially problematic, and that's something that's been pointed out in the New York Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere. It became interesting again this week because Slawi went on an official Health and Human Services podcast, um, which I didn't know existed, and said outright, basically, that the media scrutiny of his background and the questions about whether there is a conflict of interest could actually affect the speed at which society gets a vaccine for COVID-19. Let's take a listen. I was very naive. I thought, I thought that you know, the press in particular was informing, but... Uh, I now am convinced factually that the press has only one objective, which is to shape opinions and to distort information in a way that, that allows to shape an opinion. And I find that unethical extremely disappointing. And I hope it, it I, I, I really hope society will, will drive towards changing that back to, to more normalcy. So give me a second because I, my eyes are still rolling in the back of my head. Um, you know, does it seem to you guys like like this podcast, these comments, which are just so ridiculous, but they're they're really targeted at an audience of one. We've seen this time and time again where government officials seem to just need to say things to placate 
the guy in the White House. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I hope that's the the goal of those comments, um, <laughs> because that's much more reassuring than to, to think that um, Sully actually believes that, that that is sort of how the press works and, and the uh, appropriate role of, of the press in uh, covering something like this. Yeah, I found it kind of striking. I mean, the, the other background for this podcast is that the host is Michael Caputo, who is um, a, a press agent at, at HHS and who people may know. He's kind of He's an unsubtle speaker, and, and at various points in this interview, he says, I'm convinced the reporters don't want a vaccine, sir. They they want to see Trump lose, et cetera. And that's very much his role. So, you know, it, I guess perhaps, you know, Slowey is kind of being goaded by, by that kind of language. But yeah, I, I would agree that I would hope that either he was taken by the moment or, or it's a matter of performance. Not even, I mean, no matter what one thinks of the press, his assertion that the entire press has one objective is just just kind of childish. I mean, the entire press is, doesn't agree on anything. But again, it's another example of politics interfering with science. We've seen this time and time again uh, in this administration and during this pandemic. And quite frankly, it, it's disturbing. So moving on, we got a look at some phase one data from a potential COVID-19 vaccine developed by the biotech company Novavax. Damien, walk us through the results. So this, like a lot of the other early stage trials we've seen, comes with all of the caveats that it was not designed to actually protect people against COVID-19, that it enrolled too small a number of patients to draw any broad conclusions about its safety or efficacy. But with all of those things stated, it looked pretty promising, experts said. Uh, the Novavax vaccine generated an immunological response, which is to say that the people who took it developed antibodies against COVID-19. And again, we don't know what level of antibodies will actually prove protective. But as far as clearing the first hurdle in getting to those large 30,000 subject uh, studies that we were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago, Novavax seems to have a green light headed that direction. So it's now one of more than six, I, I frankly have lost count, vaccines that will be heading into large scale trials uh, later this year. And you know, as with anything, once we have more data, we'll be able to say more definitively. And Damien, there's differences in the way that the Novavax vaccine and let's say, for instance, like the Moderna or the other mRNA vaccines need to be stored, right? Right. So there, there are a few potential benefits of Novavax's approach. And one of them is that it can be stored at, at sort of regular refrigerator temperatures, which would make it easier to distribute around the world than, for example, the mRNA vaccines, which have to be kept much colder. And then, you know, experts I spoke to we're also encouraged in that the technology behind the Novavax vaccine is, you know, as briefly as possible, introducing a protein that is present on the coronavirus to your immune system in order for your immune system to learn how to react to it. And that's something that we just have a lot more experience with scientifically. Um, there are approved vaccines that work similarly. By contrast, mRNA is pretty novel. There are no approved mRNA products. And also the sort of viral vector vaccines, which we've talked about um, in the past on this podcast, better understood than mRNA, but still not as well understood as the as the protein process. So that's another thing that is potentially working in Novavax's favor if it proves to work. So finally this week, uh, we are in the dog days of this pandemic summer. And that means, sadly, that we have to say farewell to a multimedia intern at STAT um, who has been a huge asset to this podcast over the summer. And that's Teresa Gaffney. So Teresa, we will miss you. But we also wonder, um, how soon will you be writing that tell-all book about the Read Out Loud? Listen, I know you guys had me sign a lot of NDAs, but as soon as I can get around those, hire a lawyer, it's, it's on the way. Look out. <laughs> so Teresa, it has been great to have you. We are sorry to see you go. What are you moving on to now that you're leaving STAT? Thank you. Yeah, it's been a really great experience and I've I've learned a lot. I have one semester left in grad school and then 
come December, I'm just looking for jobs and trying to keep reporting. Well, Teresa, thanks again for all your help with the podcast over the summer. It's been great having you here. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And it's been really fun. Yay! That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heinz Nebonado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you're watching with respect to the Teladoc-Livongo merger. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And as always, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>